Hello and welcome to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. I'm your host Amiya, speaking from Delhi, India. Each week, insiders from our community share what news matters more in their communities and how they build stories out of the local context. Turning to South Asia, we have uh, a, a crisis brewing in Pakistan and joining me is GV contributor Umema to talk all about it. Hi Umema, welcome. Hello, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on the program. Of course, absolutely. Umema, uh, where are you speaking from? Uh, I am based in Lahore, Pakistan. Okay, so you're in the thick of it. All right, let me jump oh, in. Yes. Um, what's the current situation in Pakistan? What is like today, right now? What's the situation? Uh, currently, uh, Imran Khan and his party has resigned from uh, the government. Uh, they are out on the roads and they are protesting and demanding the sitting government now, which is uh, of Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif, to hold the elections as soon as possible. Uh, so how did we get here? Oh, that's a long story. But uh, basically, this uh, dates back to forever, probably, because uh, to be frank, we've never really had a proper government complete its tenure. And over the years, uh, the crisis has increased with every uh, government, which has brought us to this position where today, Prime Minister Imran Khan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, was doing things that were not in favor of the public. To name a few, one is price rise. The other is a law and order situation in the country. And then extremism. Uh, minorities, they themselves were not safe in the country. So it's a pile of issues right there. Yeah, and quite a pile. Yes. And then the other problem was the opposition and the government was not getting along. They were being uh, targeted. They were even in the online spaces. There was a lot of mess, uh, which was obviously creating a lot of toxicity in this country, uh, which resulted in um, to this position where PDM was uh, united. It's a coalition of different parties in Pakistan mm -hmm. uh, who are standing against this oppression, by, uh, who were actually standing against this oppression. Now they are in power and uh, Shabash Sharif is the prime minister today. But the problem now is that as PTI is resigning uh, from all the other areas also, uh, Shabash Sharif is in hot waters because now it will be difficult to contest uh, to hold the elections uh, on just those seats. We can't just have the by-elections now. Oh, okay. Probably we'll be going for full-fledged elections, the general elections. But uh, for that, there is another problem, which is with the election commission. The members have not been uh, appointed yet which is why it will be difficult to uh, hold an election at the moment. Let me see if I can summarize what's happened. <laughs> so the, the Imran Khan government um, was running into problems such as inflation, uh, law and order, some amount of extremism and minorities being unhappy. And then when there was a 
motion of no confidence tabled, uh, I assume by the coalition of the opposition, which is the PDM, you said. Then, they, then, then there's, there, there was a lot of drama around that, and I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit more about that as well. But effectively, what's finally happened is that the Imran Khan government has resigned. The PDM is ruling the country, but to consolidate that rule, they need to run elections, but they can't run elections because there's no election commission. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's complicated. Yes, it's very complicated. And uh, for the moment, even uh, Shabash Sharif hasn't uh, yet uh, formed his own cabinet. So, oh boy. everything, yes. And Punjab itself is also without um, any head at the moment for the past two weeks. And another, obviously, election is going to happen in the Punjab for uh, basically for uh, having a new. CM. A new chief minister of Punjab, obviously. Yeah. So let's go yeah. back to the, the, the no confidence motion and the excitement there. Uh, it was not a straightforward no confidence motion from what I what I've read. Oh no, no, no. It uh, actually blew out of proportion, basically, uh, because um, it was obviously according to the constitution, it was there. Uh, PDM opted for no confidence motion. They tabled it and uh, it had to happen within a certain time period, which the speaker did not call, uh, which resulted into a huge rift between uh, the government, which is now sitting outside Imran Khan's party and um, the opposition. And then slowly and steadily, it started building up. Uh, Imran Khan came out on the roads. He started presenting his point of view that how it is a conspiracy against him and how uh, PDM is being uh, paid by, uh, quote-unquote, U.S. And uh, his life is at stake, too. But... Uh, Obviously, it all did not materialize. And on the last day, uh, he just had to step down uh, with the vote of no confidence. Uh, just, I think, 11, uh, sorry, four minutes before 12 o'clock, uh, the vote of no confidence took place and wow. the opposition um, voted him out of the... That's like really cutting it close. So yes, I do have was. to ask you one question, and this is probably, yeah. of course, I come with my biases, uh, being Indian. But mm -hmm. uh, what what is the military doing in all of this? Yeah, like. It, it... Uh, interestingly, the military has actually said we are not part of it. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, key, uh, the, even yesterday, their statement was, um, military has no business to be in politics. Uh, keep us out of it. Uh, this is what their latest statement is. And they've uh -huh. been, uh, they, I, I have been hearing this, uh, I think in, this is the third or the fourth press conference uh, where they have stated this and uh, they have distanced, at least they claim to be distancing themselves from this whole scenario. I mean, whether 
how deep that runs is another matter but the fact that they say it publicly and repeatedly is definitely a new development in the in the political history very very big development yeah. uh, but the interesting part is now people are having a little difficulty in believing who to believe <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that's just the the way the world is in 2022 like yeah. sometimes i can see it and i'm still not sure if i should believe it yes exactly so now there is uh, even those who were uh, already uh, anti military or rather they were critical of the military not anti but they were critical of the military even they were ready to believe what they were saying this time but were taking a very strong stance against imran khan so it was a really uh, a tricky and a funny situation both together because uh it was hard to understand that what happened all of a sudden but as i mentioned this has been going on for the past 3 4 press conferences they've categorically been say, being saying that uh we are not part of politics uh keep us out of it we don't know what's happening uh we don't have an opinion on anything maybe it is the start of a beautiful new yes world exactly to be, be uh, yes to on a very positive note i would definitely say if their policies if their uh, um way forward has changed and they are not willing to indulge into the same activities that have been happening for years and years in pakistan that's a very good and positive development uh, let the democracy grow let the politicians grow and let the elections take its course okay umaima thanks so much for taking the time out to come and explain this to me my pleasure and thank you for having me here to tell me about the crisis in shanghai at the moment with covid-19 is our east asia editor oiwan hi oiwan welcome to the podcast Hello, I'm Aiwan speaking from Hong Kong. That's so nice of you to make time for this. So, um Aiwan, let me just open with a very basic question. What is the situation in Shanghai right now because we hear all kinds of stories? Uh, uh yesterday there is a dip in the number of uh confirmed uh covid case. Uh but uh the city still have like more than 20,000 positive, which is uh a big number in the criteria of Beijing. because it still insists on the zero tolerance uh, policy yeah and there have been some report uh, saying that the lockdown has been loosened a bit in some district but uh, in general a uh, majority of the people are still locked in their apartment and many of them they uh, face a uh, food shortage, uh, shortage problem and currently a majority of the production activities are still in suspend So can you just tell me how this whole thing started? Shanghai saw a spike with Omicron, right? Yeah, uh if we track back from the timeline, uh the Omicron uh might have entered Shanghai uh since February end of February, February around February 20. But officially uh in March 1st, uh the city's government say that they have one local confirmed case so after that announcement 
uh, some residential district has already been locked down. So you can imagine some residents had already been locked down for more than one month if we calculate from March to. Then uh, around March uh, 12, uh, some in uh, uh, some schools or the majority of the schools have been suspended for the in-person class, which means they have to go on Zoom or other uh, virtual teaching uh, platform. Uh, then uh, around middle of March, March seventeenth, uh, uh, the Shanghai city's government they say that they will use a kind of guild management system, which means uh, some district will lock down according to their testing result. So at that time, actually uh, quite many residential uh, district has been locked down already, but yeah, people can still move around uh, if they are not in uh, living in those districts. Then in around March 22nd, the central government sent an expert team to Shanghai. At that time, the uh, daily case is over a thousand. So after a kind of expert team tour, uh, one week later, uh, Shanghai announced the, uh, a so-called two-phase uh, citywide lockdown and compulsory universal tests. So according to the plan, uh, Pudong, uh, which means the eastern side of Shanghai will be locked down from March 28th to April 1st, and the western part of Shanghai will be locked down from April 1st to April 4th. But actually, it didn't happen. I mean, after the eastern side of uh, uh, is locked down on March 8, uh, 28th, they never re reopen again. Yeah, which means up till now they are still locked down. So. According to the plan, they should be reopened uh, on April 1st. Yeah, so it never reopened. And then the lockdown continued after April 5th. And the lockdown style in Shanghai is very different from other parts of the world because uh, sometimes when we say lockdown, it means that we just restrict some of our activity. But in the case of Shanghai, it means everything is closed, like, like all shops, or uh, banks and yeah and then people have to stay in their house this is like a lockdown like we had in march and april of 2020 in most parts of the world where nobody left their homes for anything yeah 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 and or we can use wuhan uh, as an example so no one can go out and uh, yeah so uh, you can say that the whole city had stopped function after march 28th that is intense, <laughs> I must say. Yeah. What about, so I, we've been reading a lot about people suffering from extreme shortages of food, um, among other things. How is, is the supply chain broken to Shanghai? How, how is that happening? It's uh, inevitable because Shanghai had 26 million people. Yeah, it's a huge city. So to feed this size of population, you need like 20,000 tons of food every day, every day. But then because all the highway are blocked, uh, the truck that transport the food into the city, they need a special license to get into the city because the driver, they need their health coke, uh, 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 they need, need a kind of green health coke in order to enter the city. 
And after visiting Shanghai, they also they cannot leave until they have uh, a green health cook again, or they have a kind of testing, the, the COVID testing. So the lo logistic itself is, is a kind of block already. Then after the truck unload their supplies, in the past they will unload it in market and supermarket, people can go in to buy it. But now, because all of these are shut, you need delivery worker to distribute the supplies oh, to wow, all yeah. the residents. Yeah, so it's a logistic problem. And then this problem is like, yeah, yeah is inevitable. So essentially, it's not that the food is not there. It's just that there's no way to get the food into the city and to the people. Yeah, in some uh, residential uh, district where they have good management team, they can do a kind of group order, which means the truck can go directly inside the residential district and then the management can distribute food. So they are okay, relatively. But then if you are living in poorly managed uh, districts, then you have to struggle for your survival. That's quite bad. So, and as of now, today, the situation remains the same? Or since the, are they exploring options of backing down from zero COVID and opening up a bit? Uh, there are reports saying that they, uh, in some district, it has been loosened because now they are shifting back to the kind of three-tier management system. But it depends on the testing result. Like if uh, there are cases in, in the campus, they still have to lock down. And then if most of the cases are asymptomatic and the number is not very big, then within the campus, you might be able to move around. I mean, but you cannot go outside the campus. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, rather than strictly lock you down in your own apartment in some district, uh, yeah, it's losing a bit. But... There's a lot of uh, report or witness accounts saying that people are, are getting really frustrated and then they, they, they simply want to go out. That seems quite natural, I feel, after the last two years. Nobody wants to be locked up in their houses anymore. Actually, apart from the food shortage problem, the, the non-COVID related death is also a, a huge problem. Yeah, because for like uh, over two weeks, yeah, the hospitals cannot uh, really take in non-COVID-related uh, patients. Oh. Yeah, so uh, like imagine in the past, every day there were about 7,000 surgery every day conducted in Shanghai Hospital, but all these are suspended. So you can see that uh, like, yeah, tens of thousands of people have been denied of medical service. And then, yeah, uh, some of them, they might die and then this life can be safe if um, yeah the the the, the city mm -hmm. is not under uh, lockdown not strict lockdown yeah that's very true yeah. it's interesting to see how these other consequences also come out of this that you say you're trying to save lives from covid but you actually end up losing lives to other things thanks everyone that was uh, most interesting at global voices we try to emphasize all the different aspects of coverage, of news coverage that don't get enough attention. And one of the things we have been doing lately is focusing on environmental stories. Here to tell us about Green Voices is uh, Associate Editor Sydney Allen. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Amaya. So, Sydney, where are you joining us from? 
So I'm based out of Bali, Indonesia, and I've been there the past four years. That is extremely cool. And I guess that makes sense then that you uh, decided to spearhead this effort. So let me just uh, start by asking you, what is Green Voices? Yeah, so Green Voices is a collective of environmentally focused GVers, um, journalists, editors, academics, people who work in civil society. Um, we kind of realized that Global Voices had all these people who were so interested in the environment and sustainability and all of these issues, but we didn't really have any uniting force that was connecting us. And so we started this group where we meet a couple times a month to um, share story ideas, share uh, environmental news from our communities, and just support each other through some obviously very challenging stories and topics. Yeah, the environment is the biggest disaster awaiting us, and yet we can't seem to focus on it collectively. So what are some of the stories that that have been covered by Green Voices at GV over the last uh, few months? And how have they been responded to in general? So we cover a huge range of topics. Um, Since our members are truly global, we have people writing from pretty much every corner of the earth. So for instance, a couple months ago, we had a series about um, indigenous tribes in India and how they were combating climate change in sustainable um, kind of community-centered ways. And I love that series because it really exemplifies GV's mission to highlight underreported stories. And in, ca- in the case of Green Voices, underreported environmental stories. Um, so that one was lovely. We also get a number of stories about um, water management, reef preservation, um, just a huge range of topics from our members. Uh, okay, and, and so how many, how much of GV's coverage is environmental at the end of the day? It's about 15 to 20% a month, which is huge considering for, um, you know, until recently, we weren't really aware that we had that output of environmental news, of, you know, green stories, if you will. And it's really given us a chance to um, collaborate in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to before. We have a lot of cross um, regional stories where someone from Brazil is working with someone from Indonesia, where maybe working with someone from Europe. And so we're getting um, a kind of collaborative community through this, that it helps us put the issues we're seeing in our communities in a larger um, context. And that's very useful because it, it makes people also realize that these are not isolated issues that only happen in certain areas, that people all over the world are experiencing these same things in the smaller, uh, in their own small communities. Yes, exactly. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> so my last question to you is this. What do you want for Green Voices? Do, what should we, should we put our call for people to come and write? Do you want us, uh, do you want people to reach out with collaborations? What, what are some of the things you'd really like to achieve with Green Voices? let's say over a year over a year I mean all of the above everything that you listed we are always welcoming and looking for new stories and new perspectives so listeners are absolutely encouraged to write for us if they're interested um 
community building, just like you said, we are really trying to make a safe space, a really innovative environment where people can come and share their stories and inspire each other. And so, um, you know, more is the merrier in terms of our green club meetings and um, just the people we're looking to join. And we're absolutely also looking for collaborations and looking for groups or partners who might uh, be interested in what we're doing and see a way for us to, um, you know, collaborate or do something good there. That's awesome. Well, you heard her, people. Uh, we definitely want to do more with Green Voices because while the world is falling apart anyway around us on a daily basis, it still remains the largest and most terrifying battle that we all have to fight. Saving the climate, saving the planet. As they like to say, there is no planet B. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sydney. Thank you so much, Maya. And that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to the Global Voices Podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. Global Voices is an international, multilingual, primarily volunteer community of writers, translators and academics, and human rights activists. Our multilingual newsroom team reports on people whose voices and experiences are rarely seen in the mainstream media. To find out more, go to globalvoices.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. The music in this podcast is from the track Voyage by Nick Markton from our extended Global Voices community.